Hello and welcome to Technically Speaking, where scientists and engineers come together to chat about a common interest to share knowledge and satisfy some curiosity. I'm Laura and I'm joined by Sarah and Antonia to talk about artificial intelligence and how it could be used in healthcare to help with diagnostics or what else it might do for medicine. So Antonia, I think the inspiration for this episode started off with you. So tell us about it. So I was reading an article and a headline said chat GPT-4 can pass the US GP medical exam. And I thought, hmm, interesting. We've heard all sorts of things coming out of chat GPT. And I thought about one of my friends has recently passed her GP exam in the UK maybe it'd be a good time to talk about it. Fair enough. And that's you, Sarah. Uh, so you're a medical professional. So um, do you have any thoughts about this? Just a caveat, I actually haven't passed my GP exam yet. I oh. passed my GP entrance exam. So it's the exam to get into GP training. So I'm both a medical professional and a surgical educator. My initial response to AI or the concept of AI passing these exams is it, it threatens my job. Um, so that's my immediate gut reaction and I also know that it's going to be heavily invested in because the NHS will need to reduce workforce workforce costs over time so I think that it's going definitely going to be an area of interest in the future all right and I guess one big question there is is it better to have an AI doctor or GP or surgeon even Or is it better to have a human doing that job? And what's the difference? So I guess we should start, as we always do in this uh, show, with defining what AI is. Now, I know it's something that needs to be trained by feeding it data. I don't really have much experience with that. I've never used ChatGPT. I've heard a lot about it, but I don't know how any of these things actually work. So have you guys got any experience of AI or have a better definition? I don't have a definition as much as just AI stands for artificial intelligence. And I think it it gets mixed with some other terminology like machine learning and neural networks. And I think those are two of the key tools that are making up the AI that we see around at the moment, such as in ChatGPT or Bing's search engine is now also AI powered. And my experience is we've got a bunch of data and fed it into the machine, as it were, and told it to either identify patterns or replicate something and try to do the next iteration that follows based on that information it's been given and so it's learning and sometimes it will develop a new way to pick up those patterns and so it becomes its own teacher in that we're not telling it exactly what pattern it should be reading the neural network i think helps it combine more things so it's not just a set data set that's my understanding as someone who isn't in computer science (laughs) i think i mean i'm also not in computer science but i think that the term artificial intelligence is a bit of a misnomer because it's only as intelligent as the information that we feed it Mm. so it is based on the data that we give it it can't create its own new data and it only learns as much as we reinforce that learning it it can't reinforce its own learning if that makes sense or it, if it does it creates its own feedback loop and in which case it has its own biases that will get amplified as it goes through more and more iterations in a popular culture example i want to say it was twitter that tried an ai on people's tweets and then it found it got 
more aggressive, more racist, more bigoted, that they had to sort it down within a very short time frame because they realized that what people put on the internet should not be repeated and amplified. <laughs> this is something that I think is important to consider when we talk about bias in healthcare and bias in AI, because any data that we put into it, any bias that we put into it will be perpetuated. And there's already something that I'm very passionate about is equity in healthcare. And any inequities that currently exist in healthcare is only going to be perpetuated by this AI. It can't go against any of the societal prejudices that we have. One of the things that's important to me is critical thinking. So the ability to take in information and weigh it against other information and say, well, does that match what I already know about a particular thing? Or am I spotting some sort of pattern or something that doesn't fit into that pattern that doesn't make sense that I should be questioning? I, I don't know if AI has that same capability to think critically about something and decide whether something is true or correct or appropriate or not. I don't know, is the honest answer. <laughs> I think it's able to say this doesn't fit the patterns I've been fed, but able to truly assimilate knowledge and create new theories... I don't think so. I think it'd be interesting because, um, like, you know, Asimov's law of robotics, we put some certain rules in um, to ensure, you know, the safety and security of our future as we developed robotics at the time. I'm not going to repeat them because I don't remember them off the top of my head. <laughs> <laughs> but I wonder if we do put those barriers in, can we put those barriers in? in a non-biased way but also isn't too restrictive because then there's that idea that you've put in a limitation but then does that create other consequences that we didn't foresee when we release it out into the world and actually it ha has a complete blind spot because we said you're not allowed to think about x so then <laughs> never thinks about x I guess it depends what you're using it for I guess pop culture example is um, iRobot this robot was sort of almost like a human being and seem to be doing certain things and seem really independent. But a more practical example of what artificial intelligence can be used for is, um, I think I saw um, something a while ago now, I've mentioned it in a previous episode, about training AI to be able to tell when a tumour is cancer or not based on an image of it. And it was actually better at doing it than the specialists who had been using these images to try and diagnose cancer for decades maybe. And it seemed like the AI had been fed sufficient data that it could spot, I guess, really subtle clues in the images that sometimes a person might miss because they're tired or they've not eaten or they're just having a really bad day or they're distracted by something. AI doesn't forget and it doesn't get distracted necessarily. So I can, I can see how in that instance it's a lot more useful than just doing some big picture out in the real world doing everything thing. Yeah, so for focused tasks, absolutely. And... Um, that specifically, I was talking to some histopathologists, um, some colleagues of mine who very, that, to explain the term, um, basically they're the people when you take a tumor out, you send it off to the lab. They're the lab people that then slice it up and look at it under a microscope and tell you what is in that biopsy. Um, so I was speaking to some of them and they were saying that actually the way that they study for their exams is purely by looking at hundreds and hundreds of slides, hundreds and hundreds of cases. And that really interested me because actually that's exactly what we do for AI is that we just feed it all of this data and eventually it comes to recognize those patterns. The other thing that I was talking to them about, because I raised the idea of, oh, well, that's exactly what AI does. So how is your job any different? <laughs> 
Um, and they were talking about actually it's something that they are worried about in the, the world of histopathology that they now need to look at career tracks that are AI proof because there is AI in some hospitals in America and they're about to bring it into a hospital in Nottingham as well to start looking at the more simple cancer slides and to free up histopathologists to do something else. It's not a particularly attractive like career or part of medicine, um, which is possibly why they're so heavily investing in AI, but also they're heavily investing in AI because it's so easily replicated by AI. Yeah, and I imagine there are a lot more niche things that those professionals could be doing, not just looking at images and saying, yes, cancer, no cancer. <laughs> they could be talking to people and actually... <laughs> So these specific doctors don't have any patient contact. Right. What they do genuinely is they look at slides and they tell you what is on the slides. That is it. That is their entire job. Oh, okay. So their job is effectively being taken by the artificial intelligence. Yeah, which is why they've been talking about, oh, well, you know, if you go into things like prostate core biopsies, which are much more specialist and require a human eye as opposed to AI, AI isn't as good good with those. Um that's like the route that they're going is that they're already having to think about AI proof subspecialities. Right. Wow. Mm. You get this idea that all medical professionals talk to patients all the time, but I can see that's not necessarily true. There are a lot of people in the lab just doing analysis, supporting the people that are, I guess, on the front line. It's one way of looking at it. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the patient client facing part of medicine. <laughs> Those doctors, did they go through the same training that you would have gone through? So the same amount of like time and sweat to get to that point? So we all have the same degree. And then after two years of like basic training um, and rotating through hospitals, you then choose what speciality you want to do. So at that point, they they will have had a different life compared to me. In that sense, that means loads more trainee doctors could be free to go to other disciplines it's just the challenge of people who are already trained in that field will have to find another field which they can apply their skills to yeah and um in a utopia uh ai and machines taking our work would mean that we have more free time and the ability to enjoy our lives but of course we understand that that's not how society works so it is a threat to people's livelihoods. And that, I think, is going to be one of the core reasons why if you speak to a doctor, their initial response will be, no, don't like it. This is my job. Only I could ever do this. And AI, of course, is always going to be inferior. But actually, there, there will be some ways in which it's superior. Mm. So I, I can see again that um, being able to diagnose something that frees up time to do something else would be particularly useful. Have you got any specific examples of how it could be superior? One of the main ways that I, I think it would be very useful is when you have, for example, healthcare workers who are working in isolation in remote remote areas, so you're the only doctor for a community, um, it's useful to be able to bounce ideas off of. Something that we do quite a lot in hospitals is we speak to consultant colleagues about Hmm, I've got this really interesting case and I'm not really sure what to do. I think it might be this. I think it might be that. Where should I go with this? And you can kind of have that conversation with an expert opinion. Um, so I think it would definitely, you know, benefit people who are working in isolation. Um, it might also improve access to healthcare. So for example, if you've got an impoverished community, then AI is going to be cheaper than hiring a doctor. So it could also improve access to healthcare in, in those sorts of ways. Um, 
I don't necessarily think that it that AI would be a superior diagnostician compared to an adequately trained doctor, but you have to train those doctors. So it does then mean that you don't have to train people in that skill anymore. Um, so you can cut out quite a lot of money and effort there if you wanted to. I would argue that becoming overly reliant on AI could be quite dangerous though. If for, I mean, stuff that happens all the time in the NHS, like our servers go down and then we suddenly have no access. <laughs> Genuinely, we suddenly have no access to things like drug charts, to things like um, patients' observations, so like their blood pressure and their heart rate. So suddenly we have no access to any of this sort of stuff and we have to go back to being on paper. So if we become overly reliant on AI, we have to have the infrastructure there to support it. All right. You touched on a lot of points there. One that I wanted to pick up on was the idea that, yeah, it'd be great to to have a sort of colleague, inverted commas, um, as an AI to, to discuss ideas. But we've also seen like people talk about AI hallucinating and just getting basic facts wrong. That's what people have called it in the industry of just, it just literally says, something that you could look up on a spec sheet sorry, specification, and it says this camera phone has this megapixels. And instead, the the AI just picks up a random one and just says, nah, it's got like 50 billion. I have heard this for teaching purposes, essentially. A lot of lecturers were saying that students are using AI to do the coursework for them. And the, the AI had been... Um, set up in a way that it was deliberately putting errors in there so the lecturers could spot it so i wonder <laughs> if that's what the hallucination mm. is about i i'm gonna let you into a little trade secret here the majority of my medical degree was learned on wikipedia <laughs> <laughs> one of the one of the skills of being a doctor is not necessarily being able to have the entirety of medical knowledge in your mind but being able to to like to know where to go to look it up mm. and you have to retain that skill even when you're using ai if it outputs something that you go oh, well that's a bit weird you need to have other options to be able to to know that it's you know giving you the correct answer i would agree with that actually because um i've been a scientist working in labs and supervising students for years now we, we would all say the same thing that it's not that you've got an entire textbook in your head you definitely have a lot of knowledge in there and that knowledge helps you infer things from other bits of knowledge that you may be not yeah. quite as familiar with. So it's the same yeah. sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. There was something you said fairly near the start about patient-facing roles, essentially. Mm. So I have a story from many, many years ago. I went to my GP, um, my general practitioner, saying, I've got a sore throat, and I've had a sore throat for a while, but I've not been able to do anything about it because of my situation. My situation has now changed, so I can get to you during normal working hours, take a look at it, tell me what's going wrong because you can definitely see something is wrong back there and they literally laughed at me an ai wouldn't have done that no it would have asked me questions yeah and antonio you actually had a paper that you sent me today saying that ai has been proven to have better bedside manner um than doctors and i can entirely see that uh as you said we all are human we all have human error and empathy is proven to be a skill. Communication is proven to be a skill. It can be learnt, but people have to put the effort in to learn it. So yes, on the one hand, AI would never make a mistake such as outputting ha 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 at you giving them uh, symptoms. 
Unless you trained it to. Unless you trained it to. That's exactly <laughs> it. Unless it's, unless it's uh, taught on all of our imperfect data. But I also think, as I said, it may be uh, an equal or superior diagnostician, but it might will not necessarily be an equal or superior clinician. And the reason why I say that is because a lot of my job is delivering bad news, uh, especially diagnoses of cancer. And for that, you need a very specific amount of tact and the ability to respond to the patient in front of you, to the person in front of you. And yes, probably eventually you could get to the point where if they look down, they're sad, or if they make that very specific twitch of their facial muscles, they want a hug. Eventually the AI will get to that point. But will will it ever be able to replace the warmth and the emotion that comes from a real person connecting with you and holding your hand in that moment? I don't think so. No, I think that human connection is what would make a big difference in a situation like that mm. and i will say i've been treated by some healthcare professionals who have been absolutely amazing you don't have to defend them it's absolutely fine <laughs> <laughs> i'm just thinking of some nurse practitioners that have just known exactly what to do and sorted things out for me and just mm. understood what i'm going through without me having to say anything to them other than my arm is swollen and numb help yeah mm-hmm. yeah And I I would argue that it's their life experience that means that they're able to provide you with the exact support that you need. And it's their experience of dealing with people who are similar to you. And there's no reason why we can't input that data into an AI. But do we want to? Yeah. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Is that what we expect? You know, there's also that kind of managing expectations that, you know, someone's always wanting to go, I want a second opinion. I want the person with the most credentials or do we then start putting AI with the best success rate in front of them and say well they've got a 99.9999% correct rate (laughs) true which you will never be able to say of a human absolutely I don't know thinking about the film AI um the one with Jude Law and the other child actor that I can't remember the name of um Oz Osman that's it yeah. Hayley, Hayley Osmond. Hayley Joel Osmond. That was it. Anyway, <laughs> uh, AI, that film. Because they had robotic sex workers. They had lots of companion robots who were able to emulate. I mean, they had AI robot children that were able to emulate those sorts of human connections and human emotions. Um, so I think the fact that we are creating films and literature about it probably means that actually ultimately we will end up wanting it um if you could and it's it's something that i don't know that i've done with my friends of like if you could build your perfect man what would they be like (laughs) i mean if you could build your perfect doctor what would they be like and if you could why wouldn't you because they would be perfect yeah what i don't really know what i'd want a doctor to look like i kind of only go to them when I'm told to really like um I, I well I've got a, a, an implant that needs to be replaced every three years and I get letters saying you have to go for this test <laughs> it's not often I get ill or think I've got something that says I've got symptoms I should go to visit my GP or sit in an emergency room so I don't know I've not had a lot of experience on that front to be able to say what I'd want them to look like or like most of what I see is what I see on TV that's probably not very representative of Grey's Anatomy <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Antonia? Yeah, I I have been to the doctor about all sorts. And also just when I had a niggle, you know, when I wasn't really sure what what it is, but it had some sort of measure measurable impact on my life. Like, you know, 
can't sleep as well because of said said thing um and they do take a while to to get to the bottom of it you know there's a bit of trial and error that because you know it it's not always obvious what it is and i think i think part of it was during covid as well where we didn't have face-to-face -face interaction and so there was a little bit of like well we had um ask my gp so you could send photos which felt really weird like here here's this weird patch on my elbow can you please see what it is and no like, i can't really see anything <laughs> it doesn't look that bad and i'm trying to describe it with my vague non common medical terms because i feel like you know doctors have that like measure of is it a stabbing pain is it a throbbing pain is it a sharp pain and i'm like i don't know i've never been stabbed yeah I... <laughs> this is my own experience of, of pain so yeah it's almost like you need a doctor to be able to interpret your human foibles mm. because like if an ai is only very good at understanding very precise instruction and we are imprecise with our uh, descriptions, then they would have to figure it out, you know? <laughs> but I guess the argument is that over time, with enough data put in, they would learn that, you know, the majority of people, when they say this, they mean this. And if it's unclear, then they ask clarifying questions. I can see that getting really frustrating, though. But like on that the point Antonio made about pain, if you're sitting there saying, well, it's, it's kind of stabbing, but I don't know, it also throbs as well. And it's like, which is it? Is it stabbing or throbbing? Just pick one. <laughs> but yeah, and I keep, I feel like I'm defending AI a lot, but then you would train it to say, okay, that's it. let's move on from that question. Because that's exactly what a doctor would do, is they would just say, you're getting frustrated by this. Let's move on. Let's, choose, let's talk <laughs> about something else. But it's an interesting point, though. Can you train... AI to be, ooh, I was going to say more human than a, a doctor mm. with no empathy. <laughs> Actually, that's what I want to say, though. I mean, I, I remember reading somewhere, but it might be apocryphal, so please forgive me. Um, but surgeons have a higher rate of psychopaths than any other profession. Because hmm. um, they like the stabbing? Hit <laughs> 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 <a> theme now. <laughs> um, potentially. I mean... We teach set phrases to medical students on how to respond to uncomfortable outpourings from patients. Uncomfortable for the patients, un uncomfortable for them. So you say things like, mm, that must be really hard. Or I can see why that would be difficult for you. Or yes, I, I get why that's frustrating. Like you, you teach them very set phrases, but if you don't apply them correctly with the correct like, <laughs> vocal tone and with the correct facial expression, it does come out like AI is just giving you, mm, yes, I can see why that's hard. Oh, that did sound a bit patronising. Yeah. Don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> Talking about training them and pouring information into them. You mean the AI, not the junior yeah. doctors? <laughs> yeah, not, not the junior doctors, no. Um, training AI and, training, and pouring data into AI... How much data is enough? How much data is too much? How much of our private lives should we be putting into these machines? How secure is it? Um, who has access to it? Who has the right to read it? Um, I mean, uh, and at what point are we allowed to just not know stuff about ourselves? Like if you 
for example, if we put people's DNA and family history and medical history and everything else in that, at what point it might come up saying, oh, you're at risk of X, Y, and Z. Do they have to know that? Do I have to know that? Or what if it knows it and tries to steer you towards it because you don't want to know? Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> that's a very circular your arguments. Yeah. I guess a good example of what you're saying is um, there's a TV program, it's on Netflix, I think, called uh, The Bold Type. It's about three youngish women making their way in publishing in New York. Um, and one of them says, um, I think her, her mother might have had breast cancer. And she ended up getting herself checked to see if she had the gene. And she did. And she got a bit paranoid about it. It was doing all these checks and whatever else. And eventually decided to get a mastectomy so she didn't have to worry about it. And she thought that would solve the problem. But she obviously got implants to replace what had been removed. And then she started to feel like it wasn't her own body. And she was uncomfortable. And there was nothing she could do about it. And I think if I were in that situation, I wouldn't want to know. I'd rather take my chances. Because just because you have a gene doesn't mean you will get cancer, right? There are other factors at play. But what if it becomes so good at predicting that it just knew because it's had so much information that the chance of it being wrong was so little. If it could say with like 90% certainty that given your environment, your habits, your genetics and all this other information that's not directly relevant to me, well, I have to sit there and think, well, is it, if I am going to get cancer and I can avoid it, maybe I should, maybe I wouldn't want to, I don't know. Maybe I'd be happy with waiting for that point and then having it removed when the time came, I don't know. I suppose it's, on the one hand, you have a right to know and make an informed choice with your own body. On the other hand, it's the right to be ignorant because ignorance is bliss. <laughs> and if you know that you're likely to die of a heart attack at 75, that's so far away, but it's always going to be hanging over your head if you know now know that. Um, compared to if you were just blissfully up until the age of 75 living your life and then, you know, one day you just don't wake up. On a lighter note. <laughs> Sorry. Fair yeah. enough, I was going to continue down that maudlin vein, so go on, <laughs> This kind of thought process was applied in the Black Mirror episode, Hanged DJ, which was where a couple had an app and they got a number and it turned out that number represented how long the app expected them to be together. So if you knew the number right from when you met, how would you play out that relationship? Would it change the way you treated that relationship? Absolutely. Absolutely. If the, if if an app told me, oh, you'll be together five years and then break up, I'd be like, no, I'm just not going to bother. <laughs> spend five years in a relationship that's gonna end uh, see i'd go the other way and i'd want to know why it was saying that and try and beat that number i'd say you're not telling me it's gonna last like this it's gonna be different it has to be different i refuse to believe that's true nah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, and maybe maybe on on the side of things is that a sign that there are some people like me who will put their entire faith in what the computer tells them when it could be wrong mm. and are we, you know, are there people out there who will say, oh, I'm going to die age 50 of MS. No, I'm going to kill myself at 40 so I don't have to live that last 10 years. And what if it's wrong? You know, how, how much faith are we going to end up putting in AI? And that is, that is a danger that we shouldn't believe that computers are perfect, AI is perfect, because ultimately it is based on human fallibility. So I, I guess you'd want some way of 
also training it to see when it's been fed something based on something that's a fallacy. I, I really don't know how you do that, though. I, I mean, I guess you could always just, you do it with the caveat of like, <laughs> the same way that people are like, oh, that's just my opinion, though. Of, you know, you have a caveat of this is AI and we cannot promise that it's perfect or whatever. And in the same way that, you know, whenever I'm counselling patients, I always say, based on the information that I have, this is what I think is going on. Therefore, this is what I would recommend. And there will be risks with everything and it might not turn out like this. You might end up having this problem, you know, doing thorough counselling on the risks and benefits of AI opinions. And are they better than human opinions? Or are they still just opinions? opinions? (laughs) I guess... From my side, I always see my opinion as just that, just my opinion, this is my professional opinion. But do patients ever see the advice the doctors give them as an opinion? Or do they see it as gospel? That is true. I guess it depends on your experience with them. I think some some people just straight up don't listen if it's not what they wanted to hear, right? Like, you know, you've been told you should cut this out of your diet because it's increasing your risk. And people don't. Like, people know doctors are right, but ultimately, they don't follow it. Ultimately, they want to eat that lamb dish, even though it's going to make their gout worse. Yes. Yes. (laughs) This friend who spent a long time trying to get this swollen ankle diagnosed, and it makes me wonder if they had AI, or the doctor had AI, would it have spotted it faster? Because... It was like sooner than the typical time that you would get this condition. And also, he didn't like going to the doctor because he couldn't walk. So he'd just go, ah, it's a bit awkward now. And then, you know, you know when you you go to a doctor and you say, oh, I need to see a doctor about this. Ah, well, the next appointment's like two weeks away. And by the time that two-week appointment comes up, you're like, it's gone. But it comes back. And so you'd book another appointment (laughs) and then it's gone again. And so they never actually get to observe it. Yeah, um, that's a really interesting point in that this friend of ours who's been diagnosed with gout, um, he is very young to have gotten gout. He is not the typical sort of person to get gout either. So usually you associate gout with older white men, generally, who drink a lot, eat a lot of meat, like think like old timey ship's captains. That's generally who gets... Or Henry VIII. (laughs) Or Henry VIII, yeah, exactly. Um, That's generally who gets gout. Um, And he doesn't fit any of those stereotypes. So would a computer that's purely basing it on pattern recognition ever come to that diagnosis? Um, Would it come to it quicker based on some unknown variables that we that we haven't inputted yet so the histopathologist i was talking to they were saying that actually the ai now uses criteria that they that they don't know it's using for it it's it's hard to describe it basically they inputted the criteria that they've teach that they've taught trainees and it's also using some extra criteria that it can't explain that it's using so would eventually ai get to the point where it would come to these conclusions quicker because it has picked up extra patterns that we don't see as clinicians. But then could that ever be the absolute truth? Because you couldn't explain it. Well, I'm just wondering if this goes back to what Sarah was saying about you wouldn't just rely on the AI alone mm. for various mm. reasons. So if you can get it to explain to you so it can teach you what it's looking out for. Yeah. 
because I guess that's similar with people like like well that looks like cancer to me but I can't really explain why that's cancer I just know that it is trust me yeah. this is my opinion <laughs> yeah trust me I'm a doctor <laughs> yeah. I, I'm imagining this 200 300 years in the future is what I'm imagining where a, you have AI practitioners who are operating independently and at that point I do wonder whether it would come to these sorts of realizations sooner or whether I think definitely in the short term it probably would never have considered it as a differential because it doesn't fit the standard patterns I guess there are always going to be outliers in the data because our understanding of the human body and, well, the entire world isn't perfect yet anyway. There are still lots of things that we don't know and there are still lots of extra patterns to spot. And I guess that's also where some of the biases come in in healthcare already. Like, for example, um, women's problems are often underlooked. Um, People of Mm. ethnic minorities in a white country have particular likely outcomes that white people don't get. Mm. And that goes back to what you're saying about training it to already have bias because the data set is limited. Yeah, absolutely. To end on a slightly lighter and more futuristic note, I've heard little bits about advances in surgery and like doing things that you would never have thought possible before, like using little robotic arms to do things and <laughs> microscopic images so you can see things with incredible detail. Is that something that you combine with AI? So you've basically got a robot doing surgery on people with no human intervention. So... I spoke to a couple of my colleagues. So I spoke to one person who is the head of robotics at Leicester, um, University Hospitals of Leicester. Um, And he was saying that the main issue for humans is there's no haptic feedback during robotic surgery because you're Mm. essentially, it's it's like piloting um, a remote control car. There's no, like, you can't feel when the car goes over a bump or, you know, turns upside down. You just have to see it and then base it on what you're seeing. This is why I don't like computer games. No feedback (laughs) of that type. (laughs) I obviously need the haptic feedback and not just the visual. Yeah. Whereas with laparoscopic, at least you get some haptic feedback because you're directly touching stuff. So, sorry, for laparoscopic, it's keyhole surgery. So you're using a camera and looking inside using very small holes, but you're still touching things directly. Whereas robotic, it's a computer attached to that equipment. And then you're, you know, I don't know, a couple of metres away controlling that robot. With like a little, like joystick and two two joysticks genuinely two joysticks that move in three directions that you can control all of the different um instruments with so you've got no idea if you're touching something that's quite squishy yeah and it's all based on your prior knowledge of what uh what anatomical structures are where which you could easily program into ai or you could map it you know, in in this futuristic world, you don't even need to give it an estimation. You could just scan them. True. Very true. Yeah. You could do an MRI and then you could program that into a robot and away it goes. That's very true, actually. In, in which case, if you were to do that, that would actually overcome quite a lot of the stuff, quite a lot of the arguments against um, AI and robotic surgery, because the main problem is having the confidence to cut something when you're unsure what it is. So when you lift something up, for example, and you go, well, I know it can't be this, I know it can't be that, and this other really important structure, I know it can't be any of that, so it can't, it's nothing important, so I can just cut it. And that is a, a, a <laughs> bit of confidence. The idea you have non-important things in your body, it's a bit... Well, 
but yeah like the appendix yeah <laughs> but the appendix wouldn't be there but yeah let's just cut it out anyway. i don't need it sorry anyway <laughs> so it's having that confidence to know that there aren't any vital structures that you're going to go through basically and would an ai ever be able to independently make those sorts of assumptions and i suppose eventually you would get the technology to the point where you could do an mri scan but you would have to have a surgeon label every single structure as cut here don't cut here important not important because it, i mean it's even been it's been i mean anecdotally found that nurse practitioners nurse surgeons nurse operators don't have the the confidence to cut without having a surgeon there saying yes to take it and having a person there to take that risk for them i feel like ai probably wouldn't do risk very well yeah i can see why you know people have that kind of measure of how much risk they're willing to take whereas an ai we kind of say like you know if it was a programmer they might say okay let's say 99.99999% absolute but then do we get in a in a world where these robotic surgeons go into the operating theater and then go yeah that's a little too, that's a little bit too borderline for me yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> everyone get back out we're we're coming out of this yeah and i mean risk in surgery is is i mean basically the whole premise of surgery is risk management so what what is the risk if we don't do the operation what is the risk if we do what is the risk if we do this specific operation versus a different type versus if we just do this or we just do that um so i i i think risk management is going to be a big area that ai will struggle with um but then there's other stuff that's taking out uh surgery as a required speciality which obviously we won't go into here uh future episodes maybe especially the the idea about risk which is our very first episode talking about what risk means to us two years over two years ago now yeah uh, we didn't go into that much depth though would an ai be able to judge risk um <laughs> <laughs> to sum up my my opinion on this whole ai thing um ai in healthcare ai is built and trained on imperfect data from imperfect humans Therefore, expecting perfection from AI is impossible. We shouldn't expect perfection from AI. And there is no such thing as perfection in the human world. So also don't expect perfection from your doctors. (laughs) Well, that just reminds me of the chaos theory episode where we said, you know, with enough variables and enough computing power, we could almost put a theory to predict something like this. But will we ever get to that point where we have enough computing power to do that? Good question. What do you recommend for people trying to train AI to be a better doctor? Because, you know, there are pros and cons to it. We've talked about a lot of cons, but they seem to be, if we could work it out, you know, we're very early stage in it. So what do you think should be taken into consideration today for the future? What would be the ideal clinician? And then from that, build the AI into that. So you don't just think about a diagnostician because we're basically there already with AI. You also have to think about personalized management plans. You also have to think about communication with patients. You also have to think about the AI's own resilience and ability to deal with the workload. You have to think about the way that it interacts with other healthcare workers and the system in general. 
that is probably what I'd recommend is think about what your ideal is and build the AI towards that in a holistic way. So like any good project management. Yeah, exactly. Great. Okay, so we've uh, covered a lot of different things about AI and how it could impact healthcare today or how it already impacts healthcare. Thank you, Sarah, for sharing your experiences. You're welcome. I hope we continue to have great conversations like this in other episodes. The views expressed in this podcast belong entirely to the person that said them. They do not represent any industry or organisation. If you enjoyed listening to these views, it would really help us out if you could rate us, leave a review and tell a friend. This podcast was sponsored by no one, but if you're interested in funding us to continue to have frank discussions about science and engineering, please get in touch.